Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Jeffersonian America. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, President Jefferson. Jefferson was a strict constructionist, but the most famous act of his presidency made him look like a broad one. Jefferson's governing style was less pretentious than that of the Federalists, and he established a rule of sending a clerk to read presidential messages, which became the annual message. This contrasted against the Federalist practice of having the president make personal appearances, which seemed much more like monarchal speeches from the throne. This precedent remained unbroken until Woodrow Wilson reversed it in 1913. Jefferson also established a rule of having small dinners with seating without rank, though these were obviously still rather fancy parties. Jefferson would also receive callers in sloppy attire, and aristocrats were shocked that Jefferson actually shook the hands of his guests. He also reduced the number and grandeur of formal balls, levies, and dinners. He rode on horseback about the capital instead of using a carriage because being in a carriage was seen as too king-like, and people had criticized Adams and Washington's ornate carriages. While Jefferson reversed many of these appearances, he also changed some of his political principles that he had championed as a private citizen. For instance, he kept most public servants from the previous Federalist administrations. He kept much of the Hamiltonian system intact, with the exception of excise taxes as well as maintaining the National Bank of the United States. He retained a mildly protectionist tariff to help industry, and he did not tamper with Federalist programs for funding the national debt and assuming the Revolutionary War debts of the states. As president, Jefferson became more of a pragmatist than an idealist, and he wanted to assuage the political rift between both parties. With all that being said... Jefferson did reverse some old Federalist policies. He defended the rights provided by the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. He pardoned the ten, quote, martyrs who were serving sentences under the Sedition Law. Jefferson also had the government return many fines from the Sedition Law, and he enacted new naturalization laws in 1802 with a return of the five-year requirement before a person could become an American citizen. Also, while the alien and sedition laws had expired in 1801, the parts that were still in effect were removed, and he persuaded Congress to repeal Hamilton's excise taxes. Jefferson is one of the only presidents who succeeded in substantially reducing the national debt while balancing the budget by cutting government spending, and his Secretary of State, Albert Gallatin, the watchdog of the Treasury, agreed with Jefferson that the debt was more of a curse than a blessing. As a result, the national debt fell from $80 million to $57 million, including Louisiana Purchase, which we'll talk about in a minute. Jefferson ended the graduated property tax imposed by the High Federalists in 1798. He reduced Hamilton's standing army, but upheld the need for a stronger navy. He emphasized states' rights and encouraged the development of an agrarian nation, as opposed to a commerce nation that Hamilton had favored. Under Jefferson's administration, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, 
which meant that a tie vote between presidential candidates of the same party could no longer cause the confusion as it had in the election of 1800. And this was allowed because of a provision was inserted that said electors had to specify that they were voting for one presidential candidate and one vice presidential candidate. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Judiciary. The Judiciary Act of 1801 had allowed the Federalists to create 16 new judgeships and other judicial officials. This is one of the last important laws passed by the expiring Federalist Congress, and Adams continued on his last day in office to sign these commissions of Federalist, quote, midnight judges. Jeffersonians charged that the Federalists were packing the judicial branch for life, and the act was repealed by the newly elected Republican Congress in 1802. The new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, had been appointed in the last days of Adams' term, and he is arguably one of the most important Chief Justices in U.S. history as he served for about 34 years, and he continued handing down Federalist decisions long after the party was dead. I suppose the point is that political parties have always stacked the judiciary in their favor, even when it seems beyond the pale. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Battle in the Court. One of the first and most important decisions that Marshall handed down was the Marbury v. Madison decision of 1803. William Marbury was one of the midnight judges, who sued on the behalf of several other judges to have the delivery of his commission which was being held up by the new Secretary of State James Madison. Madison was ordered by Jefferson to withhold appointments of the Judiciary Act of 1801, and Marshall knew that the Jefferson administration would not enforce a writ by the court to deliver the commission to Marbury or any other judge. So Marshall pulled a fast one, and he ruled that part of the Judiciary Act of 1789, upon which Marbury had based his appeal, was unconstitutional by giving the court the right to enforce appointments, as only the executive branch had the right to enforce the law. So Marshall gave the Supreme Court power to rule a law by Congress unconstitutional. And this will contrast against the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, where Jefferson had claimed that states had that right. As a result, the power of the Supreme Court was greatly enhanced and gave them the concept of judicial review. And again, Judicial review is the ability for the Supreme Court to rule a law passed by Congress as unconstitutional. Well, Jefferson wasn't exactly happy with the Supreme Court after this decision, and so Jefferson ends up threatening the sovereignty of the court. Jeffersonians are outraged that judicial review buttressed the power of the Federalist-dominated Supreme Court, and Jefferson supported congressional Republicans in their desire to remove the highly partisan and uncouth Federalist judge Samuel Chase. Early in 1804, impeachment charges against Chase were voted by the House of Representatives, but the Senate failed to convict Chase in early 1805, because in their view, there was no evidence that the judge had been guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, only bad manners and unrestrained partisanship. This is significant because no attempts to reshape the court will be made by impeachment hereafter and grounds for impeachment will be based on criminal charges, not political partisanship. At least for judges, that is. This precedent is important, because it reassures the independency of the judiciary and the separation of powers in the United States government, which is critical for saving the republic. 
Please advance to the next slide entitled, War in North Africa. As I said before, Jefferson reduced the size of the United States Army due to the long distrust of large standing armies, and he also reduced the Navy. At the same time, there was a massive plundering of U.S. ships by pirates of the North African states, which led to an increased size of the American military. The North African states in this era included Algiers, Tripoli, Morocco, and Tunis. And the North African states had long made a national industry of blackmailing and plundering merchant shipping in the Mediterranean. The Federalists had been forced to buy protection, especially from Algeria. And at exorbitant blackmail prices, war seemed cheaper than peace in 1801. This led to the Tripolitan War, as the Pasha of Tripoli declared war on the United States. In response, Jefferson sent a small U.S. Navy to the shores of Tripoli, led by Stephen Decatur, hence the line from the Marine Corps song. After four long years of fighting, a peace treaty was extorted from Tripoli in 1805, though the punishment of other North African corsairs continued on and off until the War of 1812. Convinced of the need for more defense forces, Jefferson ordered the construction of a small fleet of gunboats later contemptuously called the Mosquito Fleet, which proved entirely ineffective during the War of 1812 against Great Britain. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Purchase. In 1800, Napoleon induced Spain to cede Louisiana to France, and France in 1802 withdrew their right to deposit at New Orleans, guaranteed under the Pickney Treaty of 1795 which basically said that the Americans could no longer use the port of New Orleans and connect their farmlands on the Mississippi River Basin to the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. It seemed as if Napoleon was poised for a possible military threat against the United States, which might force the United States to make alliances with other European powers. So Jefferson sent James Monroe to Paris to join the other U.S. minister there, Robert R. Livingston. The delegates were instructed to buy New Orleans and as much land to the east in the Floridas as possible for about $10 million, and if the negotiations failed, they were allowed to strike up an alliance with Great Britain. But Napoleon then decided to sell all of Louisiana and abandon his dream of the New World, because he had failed to reconquer the sugar-rich island of Saint Domingo when Toussaint l'Ouverture had led ex-slaves in a bloody revolt. Thousands of French troops sent by Napoleon died of malaria during the struggle, and so Napoleon was forced to use the sale of Louisiana as revenue for the conquest of Europe during the Napoleonic conflicts. In addition, he did not want to be distracted by the United States and have an enemy on the North American continent. Although Livingston initially negotiated for just New Orleans, the entire Louisiana territory, stretching from New Orleans all the way into the Pacific Northwest, was purchased for $15 million, which equals out to about $0.03 cents per acre. Jefferson accepted the treaty, although reluctantly. As a strict constructionist, he didn't think the Constitution authorized the president to negotiate treaties, which it would incorporate huge new expanses of land into the Union. So he secretly proposed an amendment to the Constitution to provide for such an act, but his advisors urged Jefferson to act now before Napoleon changed his mind. So then Jefferson and the Republicans do a little bit of constitutional mental somersaults. 
the Constitution does allow the government to promote the national welfare, and since it also does not specifically prohibit the acquisition of territory, Jefferson reluctantly submitted the treaties to the Senate while privately admitting that the purchase was probably unconstitutional. Despite this, the Senate promptly ratified the treaty, and this made many land-hungry white Americans jubilant, though the Federalists were completely opposed to this plan. Now, on the one hand, we can say that this is a typical move of the loyal opposition up to the present, usually going against whatever pet project the president has. But ironically, the Federalists argued for strict construction, saying the president did not have the power to purchase Louisiana territory. Their real reason for opposing this, though, was because they were worried that Western lands would end up being loyal to the Jeffersonians, and this would then weaken the North in Congress. So as you can see, playing politics is nothing new in American governance. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Exploring the Territory. Overnight, the United States was doubled in size, and the country received the western half of the richest river valley in the world. This also guaranteed the Mississippi waterway to the Gulf of Mexico, including New Orleans, and paved the way for western expansion although this was clearly at the expense of the natives. Now remember, no natives were included in any negotiation of selling of their land to the Americans. And as a result, Indian removal will pick up, so that by 1890, all remaining Native Americans in the region would be located on reservations. The purchase also ended European expansion in North America, for the most part, and avoided a possible war with France and an entangling alliance with Great Britain. It boosted national unity, and the Federalists pretty much now became a mere sectional party in New England, since many white settlers in the West would see Jefferson as a national hero. In order to explore the new territory, Jefferson commissioned Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to lead an expedition from 1804 to 1806. The pair set out from St. Louis in 1804 and traveled to the Pacific Northwest and returned two years later, having traveled over 7,600 total miles. The pair brought back with them a host of valuable information, including maps and information about plants, animals, and native tribes. They followed a trail that extended from the Missouri River through the Rockies and along the Columbia River to the Pacific Ocean. Along the way, they met Sacagawea, a Shoshone female who became their principal scout and translator once Lewis and Clark had reached Bismarck, South Dakota for the winter, and she was crucial in helping their expedition succeed. They could never have done it without her. This expedition also bolstered the United States' claim to Oregon and further opened up the West to Indian trade and exploration. Once they arrived in the Oregon Territory, they met the Nez Perce tribe, who would be American allies all the way until their final defeat in 1877 by the United States military. That's a story for another time. With the West now sort of explored, John Jacob Astor formed the American Fur Company in 1808 in order to tap the newly purchased territory and eventually resulted in a stronger U.S. claim to Oregon. Another adventurer you should note is Zebulon M. Pike who led an expedition in 1805 to 1806 to explore the territory near the headwaters of the Mississippi River. He ultimately went into Colorado and New Mexico and sighted Pike's Peak there, 
As a result of his explorations, Spain grew very wary of increased settlement along the border of Spanish territory. In fact, at multiple points, they tried to intercept Lewis and Clark in order to turn them back. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Election of 1804. This election saw Thomas Jefferson run against Charles C. Pinckney, a former ambassador and Revolutionary War hero who had been Adams' running mate in 1800. Jefferson was re-elected in a landslide, and Republicans continued to hold majorities in both houses of Congress. The Federalists really were dying at this point, especially as the United States added more states in the West, as most Western farmers in this era voted Republican because they opposed active and expensive government. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Secession Plots. Burr had run for president in 1796 and 1800, when he became Jefferson's vice president in 1801. By 1804, the Essex Junto had formed, which was a small group of Federalist extremists who plotted for New England's secession from the Union in the creation of a seven-state Northern Confederacy that would include New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Vermont. New England was a highly sectional Federalist stronghold and threatened by Jefferson's dominance in the Louisiana Purchase, which would lead to more Western expansion and the further decline of their political power. These plotters had courted Hamilton to run in the New York gubernatorial race in 1804 and then lead the secessionist movement. But Hamilton refused because he did not see Louisiana as the problem, only the expansion of democracy. And also, Hamilton had fought to establish this country, so he was not going to see it torn apart because of political partisanship. Temporarily frustrated, the plotters then courted Vice President Burr. And Hamilton led opposition to Burr's New York gubernatorial campaign, and Burr was subsequently defeated. Hamilton then exposed the plot at a meeting of leading Federalists in Albany, and Burr promptly challenged him to a duel and killed him on July 11, 1804, in Weehawken, New Jersey, close to the same site where his son had died in a duel some years earlier. This made him the only vice president in history to kill a man in office, though he is not the only president to shoot a man while in office, thanks to Dick Cheney. Another example of a separatist plot is the Burr Conspiracy. After the duel with Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr looked for another opportunity to advance his self-interest, though his political career was tarnished. In 1806, rumors spread that Burr had attempted to separate the western part of the United States from the eastern part and unite it with a soon-to-be-conquered Spanish territory west of the Louisiana Territory and perhaps even into northern Mexico. Many citizens reported that they saw armed groups of men across the river that did not belong to the U.S. Army and who appeared to be stockpiling supplies. Unbeknownst to most, Burr was initially supported by General James Wilkinson, the military governor of the Upper Louisiana and also the highest-ranking general in the Army. Wilkinson collaborated with the Spanish for a time and even tried to help them stop the Lewis and Clark expedition. It appears Wilkinson either got cold feet or decided it was not in his best interest to go along with Burr, so he later exposed the plot to Jefferson. Burr was arrested in 1806 in Natchez and tried the next year in Richmond, Virginia, 
though John Marshall dropped the case when two government witnesses could not be found. The point is that some in the founding generation were demagogues and opportunists, men of ambition who wanted power and were willing to betray the Constitution to get it. And you must always be wary of such individuals. Because in this era, and as today, many people are worried about disunion and rival confederacies. So this places their fears about the fragility of the country in context, as there were real threats to the survival of the Republic. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic Wars had raged for years and led to the continued harassment of U.S. shipping. By 1805, the British controlled the high seas, but France controlled the European continent, and the British began seizing American ships who sought to trade there. This sought to end the U.S. practice of importing French goods into the United States and re-exporting them as neutral cargo. In 1806, Napoleon passed the Berlin Decree, which was his attempt to starve Great Britain out by closing the ports of the continent to British commerce and outlying all trade with the British Isles. American ships trading with the British would then be confiscated by France. So England responded in kind with their own orders and council, beginning in 1806 and continued in 1807. The Order and Council closed ports under French continental control to foreign shipping. In neutrals, meaning the United States, might enter Napoleonic ports only if they were first stopped by British ships. Britain encouraged these ships, including American ones, to be inspected and loaded with British goods before continuing onto the continent. So the British were sought to strangle French trade, not French imports. Any American ships that did not stop in Great Britain or did not have British cargo, would be confiscated. By 1807, Napoleon retaliated with a Milan Decree, which stated that any neutral ship entering a British port or submitting to a British warship at sea would be confiscated if they attempted to enter a continental port. Many American shippers decided to take their chances by continuing trade in the hopes of gaining handsome profits. The result was British impressment, meaning the forcible enlistment of American sailors into the British Navy. As a result, 6,000 Americans were impressed from 1808 to 1811, and many died or were killed during the service. The British justified this by complaining that the United States had enticed British sailors to desert the Royal Navy for the United States Merchant Marine. Well, as a result of this impressment, the Chesapeake-Leopold affair occurred. And this is when the British commander of the royal frigate HMS Leopard demanded the surrender of four alleged deserters on board the USS Chesapeake, and the American captain refused. As a result, the British fired at the Chesapeake, which resulted in three dead and 18 wounded, and the Chesapeake limped back to an American port. The American reaction was the most hostile since the XYZ affair over 10 years earlier and the British Foreign Office admitted its error. Nonetheless, Jefferson used the incident to incite calls for American action and forbade British ships for docking at American ports. And he also ordered state governors to call up as much as 100,000 militiamen. So you're probably asking yourself, well, why didn't the U.S. Navy just protect American ships? Uh, what Navy? We basically had none except for the small Mosquito Fleet 
And this Navy was made even worse because of Jefferson's budget cuts. So as a result, from 1803 to 1807, the British seized 500 American ships, while the French took 200. Thus, Jefferson responded with drastic action. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Embargo. So what was Jefferson's response? Well, he basically said that we should just stop trading and deprive the warring nations of American crops and raw materials. So he passed the Embargo Act of 1807, which forbade exports of all goods from the United States to any country at war. This was hastily passed through Congress, and they reasoned that the embargo would quickly force Britain and France to recognize our rights. But if you think about it, this kind of flew in the face of Jefferson State's rights philosophy, because a strict constructionist view of the U.S. Constitution's ability to regulate commerce would not allow it to stop exports. Only a loose construction interpretation would allow that. So how does Jefferson justify this in his own mind? Well, he believed that this was an enlightened alternative to war, since war means a big military, debts, taxes, and bureaucracy. In other words, a larger federal government. And this is exactly what Jefferson and his Republicans wanted to avoid. Unfortunately, the Embargo Act was a disaster for the U.S. economy. In 1807, American exports had been $108 million. One year later, it was $22 million. And the embargo was probably more damaging for the United States than the British and French. The Federalists, most of whom lived in New England, bitterly opposed it, since shipping was their livelihood. This also adversely affected the South and West, where mountains of cotton, tobacco, and grain piled up until they were illegally sold throughout the Canadian border. Jefferson got Congress to pass very harsh enforcement laws, and many view this as tyrannical, as you can see from the Oh Grab Me Snapping Turtle cartoon. And New England even again talked of secession. The Massachusetts congressman, John Quincy Adams, who viewed the embargo as temporary and a patriotic measure, was the only Federalist who voted for it. The embargo was eventually repealed, even though the next president loved the idea of it. The Embargo Act was finally repealed on March 1, 1809, three days before Jefferson left office in his Non-Intercourse Act of 1809, and this formally reopened trade with all nations, except for Britain and France. And this remained the United States policy until the end of the War of 1812. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. So why did the embargo fail so badly? Well, first the United States overestimated British dependence on American trade and underestimated British resolve in the Napoleonic Wars. Next, the embargo was not in effect long enough or administrated tightly enough to have any real effect and it actually proved to be three times as costly as a potential war. The United States also lost an opportunity to build a strong navy, and the embargo actually worsened the conflict between Britain and France. Britain had been hit harder by the embargo, and so the French applauded it, and this even gave the French the ability to seize American ships in French ports 
where they could say that they were merely cooperating with the Embargo Act. Lastly, Northeastern Federalists undermined the embargo through various smuggling activities. While the embargo was ultimately a failure, we must recognize the serendipity of the act, because New England was forced to become self-sufficient once again. Old factories were reopened, and new ones were built, so the foundation of America's modern industrial might was laid behind the wall of the embargo, non-intercourse, and the War of 1812. It's interesting to note that Jefferson, who was a critic of industrialization, ironically may have contributed more than Hamilton to its rise in the United States. While the embargo was a failure, we must also note that the British were hit pretty hard by it. Importers and manufacturers in Great Britain had suffered severe losses because they were dependent on U.S. cotton, and thousands of angry, unemployed British workers who had been affected by the embargo petitioned Parliament to repeal their orders in council. And this again is ironic, because two days before Congress declared war in June of 1812 against the British, the British Foreign Secretary actually announced the suspension of the orders in council. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1808. This campaign was impacted by the embargo issue. Since the Federalists gained ground in the presidential election, although the Republican James Madison defeated Charles Pinckney. The Federalists ultimately made significant gains in Congress, though they were still a minority, and they gained control of several state legislatures in the Northeast. Please advance to the last slide entitled, Jefferson's Legacy. Jefferson's legacy is a bit contradictory, since he was a strict constructionist personally until president, but then became a broad constructionist, suggesting that once you're in government, you recognize its necessity to promote the general welfare. But his real legacy was expansion, which was the primary goal of the Jeffersonians. It was orderly in the Northwest, but not in the South. Expansion and hegemony are very hard to square without strong centralized government, and Jefferson managed to create an empire of liberty for whites as white settlers gobbled up Indian lands in the West. Jefferson did manage to lower the debt, and balance the budget, as well as promote states' rights in regards to slavery. Finally, Jefferson stepped down after a two-term presidency, which cemented this precedent that Washington had established, and would remain until it was constitutionally enshrined in the 1950s. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.